You're listening to Breaking the Silence, a podcast by Reach 10, where we're creating a culture of courage, compassion, and connection to overcome the shame, silence, and fear that often surrounds topics such as sexuality and pornography. We're your hosts, Chriselle Simons and Creed Orm. Welcome back, listeners. We are so excited to break the silence today with Maxwell Hill, who is going to share his story and share with us how he has developed faith and resilience through his journey through recovery. And I'm so excited to hear from him and to learn from him. And Maxwell, go ahead and introduce yourself. Yeah, so I'm Maxwell, and I've lived in Utah my whole life. Um, I'm 25 years old. I love sports. Um, I played football and baseball primarily growing up, and I'm also a musician. I I actually enjoy playing guitar. Yeah, I played live weddings for a while, or live music at weddings for a while, and now I work as a salesman for a marketing agency in Lehigh called Neil Patel Excel, and I do CrossFit on the side. That's kind of what like work, CrossFit, those are kind of the main things that take up my life right now. Just kind of, those are just some fun things (laughs) that I do. Football, baseball, CrossFit, (laughs) all that good stuff. Cool. And we have you on today's episode because we understand that you have had a struggle with pornography and you've learned a lot through that experience. We're looking forward to hearing from you what you've learned and how your wisdom gained through your experience can can bless our our listeners. So do you mind going into a little bit about your story and how pornography has impacted your life and what you're doing in recovery? Yeah, I would love to. Yeah, and I guess just to preface this, I would like to say that this might sound weird, but I would like to say that like my struggles with pornography have honestly been one of the biggest blessings in my life. I guess just to say it simply, I like to think of like Peter when Christ calls him out on the water and he starts to walk out to Christ, but then he starts to fall into the water and he starts to drown. And then Christ comes down and reaches down and he saves him from falling into the water. And for me, I think like pornography has really been such an awakening experience for me because just like Peter, like I guess the way that I would describe this is we can't realize that we need to be saved until we first realize that we're drowning. And I think for me, pornography has been that like awakening for me. It's this awakening to my weaknesses, my shortcomings in a way where I've actually felt as if I'm drowning. And that awakening has like made me realize like I need a savior. I need to be saved. I need a power beyond myself to save me from this experience. But yeah, I, so just to kind of preface that, um, I guess my experience with pornography, it started when I was a young kid. I was probably 11 or 12 uh, the first time I, I encountered pornography. I encountered pornography on a PlayStation Portable. I begged my parents for months to let me get a PlayStation Portable because one of my teammates on my baseball team had one. And they finally let me get one. 
and I, they didn't know that it actually had access to the internet. They were more worried about me just becoming addicted to video games. And I didn't know it had access to the internet either. But one day I found out it had a browser. And so I was just kind of playing around on the browser. And I guess I just got a little too curious. And I started, yeah, that was the first time I ever encountered pornography. And I remember it being probably one of the most like emotional experiences that I had had up to that point in my life on both extremes. Like on one side, I was so shocked and I was terrified and so like embarrassed and ashamed of what I had seen. I I remember I was like shaking from what I had seen. But at the same time, like there was almost this like excitement and enjoyment and like this curiosity. So it was, it was such a interesting experience because it was so emotional on both extremes. But I remember like after that experience, like I sobbed and, and I remember like crying to God and asking for forgiveness. And I felt so bad about what I had done. And I didn't tell anybody about that experience for months and months. And, and I think, I don't remember like the exact details perfectly, but I think that I kind of kept going back to what I had seen a few times after that. Yeah. And I just was so ashamed. I think I ended up hiding it for probably about three to six months until later that year, I went to a EFY and I remember in the testimony meeting, I felt like the most overwhelming spirit I've ever felt. Like I felt so overwhelmed with love from God and just felt like a reassurance that I needed to talk to my bishop about what I had experienced. And so I remember that weekend when I came home from EFY, I called my bishop on my cell phone. I called him directly. I didn't call the secretary because I was so embarrassed. Like I had never had to schedule an appointment with the bishop before. And I called him directly. We scheduled an appointment and I told him what had happened. And the way that he responded to what I told him is he asked me to not take the sacrament. And he also asked me to talk to my parents about what had happened. And I remember that feeling like that was the worst thing that he could have asked me to do. Like not take the sacrament and tell my parents were probably two of the hardest things I feel like he could have asked me to do. And I came home that day and I literally just laid on the couch like all day, like a dead man. (laughs) Cause I just, I was so overwhelmed. But I I did get the courage to tell my mom, I said, mom, like, I need to talk to you and dad tonight. And so after everybody went to bed, my mom, she came and, and said, like, is now a good time to talk? And I said, yeah. And she pulled me into our living room with my dad. I started sobbing and I was like, you guys are going to kill me. You're going to kill me. And I told them that I had viewed pornography. And I remember them saying, like, we're not going to kill you. And they they both hugged me. And we kind of shared this, like, special moment together. Yeah, just hugging each other and crying. I did feel a lot of comfort in that moment. But I think, like, the experience really started to sink in that next Sunday when I couldn't take the sacrament. Like, I remember the sacrament being passed down the pew and... I wasn't allowed to take it. And I just remember my mom crying next to me. Through this whole experience, I just felt so much shame. And I really didn't know how to process like what I was experiencing. Like, I think that's the biggest thing looking back on that experience is 
I just didn't know how to process what I was going through. But the way that like my young 12 or 13 year old mind like knew how to process it was basically to tell myself that I was a bad person and that I was lustful. And so I feel like I kind of labeled myself and branded myself as like a lustful, a lustful person. And I think that really like carried with me all throughout like my teenage years um, and into high school. Um, but fortunately, like I didn't really struggle with pornography up until my mission. And then I served a full-time mission in Dallas, Texas. But when I came home from my mission, like probably six months, six to 12 months after I'd been home, I started to get back into like some of those, those habits that I had. And I don't even know if I'd say habits, but just I started to get more curious again with pornography after I got home from my mission. And then it started to become like a really serious problem where I was probably viewing pornography at least once a week. And then it, it kind of evolved into masturbation along with viewing pornography. And now over the past like four or five years, I guess I, you could say I've been in recovery, like working to overcome those uh, behaviors of like viewing pornography and masturbation, like, and yeah, just working to overcome those things. So yeah, I think, does that give you guys a good sense of... Yes, kind of Maxwell, <laughs> thank you so much for sharing your story and, to, and for sharing where you've been and the path you've walked a little bit with us. As you were sharing your story, I just pictured little Maxwell, little 12-year-old Maxwell, and and just how formative that experience probably was for you and how that really has probably impacted you your mm -hmm. whole life, right? For sure. Is that true? Has it? Yeah. Like I would say I didn't realize how much that experience has affected me. But now like that I've been in recovery, I've kind of been working through over or overcoming these behaviors. Yeah. I think like looking back on my past, one of the things that I've done in my recovery, I was working for a company called Blip. And one day my manager just was having what's called a one-on-one -on -one with me where we're just kind of having like a meeting where he just kind of checks in with me and sees how I'm doing for in a work sense. But for some reason, I just felt like I should talk to him about like my struggles with pornography, which I know seems kind of weird in a work setting. But I would like to think that like I was inspired by the Holy Ghost to bring that up. And so I brought that up yeah, in this one on one with my manager. And he actually told me that he had been through a recovery program and he wanted to connect me with one of his friends. And so we actually went to dinner with one of his friends. He, he owns and operates a lot of uh, addiction recovery programs, not specifically for pornography. I think he does a lot with drugs and alcohol. But he knew um, a therapist named Mark Castleman in Sandy, Utah, that, that runs an organization called Reclaim. And so I got referred to that program. So I actually started attending this program with Mark Castleman. And I think what Mark Castleman did for me in my recovery, he taught me this concept called cognitive behavioral therapy or CBT is what a lot of people refer to it as. And it's a certain modality of psychology, but he kind of introduced me to this concept. And so the concept of cognitive behavioral therapy is basically the idea that your beliefs are what drive your emotions and your emotions are what drive your actions. 
So a lot of us like in recovery, we focus so much on our behaviors. Like I need to stop viewing pornography. I need to stop masturbating. Like we hyper-focus on behaviors, but cognitive behavioral therapy actually says that like the behavior is not the issue. It's actually like our beliefs and our emotions that are underneath our behaviors that are the underlying problem. And I think that that is doctrinal because we know that like Elder Packer has a famous quote that says like true doctrine understood changes attitudes and behaviors quicker than a study of behavior will change behavior. And then he says that's why we stress so forcefully the doctrines of the gospel because doctrine is addressing more of our belief system and it's not so much focused on like our behaviors. So what Mark Kasseman taught me to do was really to kind of retrace all of the sexual experiences that I've had in my life and really kind of look at them through this lens of like, what were the beliefs that led me to feel certain emotions? And what were those, what were those emotions that led me to certain behaviors? As I've kind of revisited the sexual experiences that I've had throughout my life, I would say that like pornography has had a huge impact on my life. When I say a huge impact, I think the way that it has really affected me the most is it's made me feel unworthy. It's made me feel like I'm not good enough and I maybe never will be good enough. And yeah, and I guess those are kind of similar feelings to like shame. Yeah, and I guess another way of describing it is just like feeling broken. Like pornography has made me feel like I'm a broken human being. <laughs> yeah. <So. laughs> and that's, I think, I think that's the most dangerous part about shame and about, especially when we pick up these patterns and these behaviors when we're so young, we, yeah. we really carry those core beliefs with us moving forward and they can be really difficult to uproot and change. <laughs> Mm -hmm. And so I really appreciate you sharing this. And I love that you are doing CBT and that I always have to make sure I say that right. <laughs> um, I love cognitive behavior therapy. And I think that it's such a great tool to be able to help you to identify what are my beliefs? What are my thoughts? And how are those impacting my actions? Because mm -hmm. I agree when we focus solely on behavior, that can be a big trap. We're like, well, why do I keep going back to this? And we just like focus on the behavior and we punish the behavior. It's not addressing the belief behind the behavior that's really going to change that behavior long term, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like the behavior almost can become a trigger because when you try to fight against it, it your mind almost tends to cling to it and you start to recount like past experiences that you've had with the behavior and then that starts to release dopamine and you start to, it starts to push you towards a relapse. Like that's what Mark would always call the funnel. Yeah. Like when you're, when your brain starts to release dopamine, basically the dopamine's just, it's pushing you towards relapse. Like it, dopamine, it's a kind of a survival chemical. And so we actually get dopamine, like when we're about to eat a meal, like there's a lot of things that trigger dopamine, but like one of those things can be those behaviors. Like when we start to think about those behaviors and, and kind of past experiences that we've had, like those can be like triggering 
totally. For sure. Totally. And that's why I'm so grateful that we're having conversations like this, Maxwell, because I hope that we having this conversation can change the culture in a way that we no longer are focused on correcting the next generation's behavior, but rather we're helping them to change their beliefs and yeah. their thoughts. Because I, I just think of what would have been different for you had your bishop and your parents helped you to identify your beliefs and your thoughts rather yeah. than just punish the behavior, right? Right. Like, maybe a lot of things would be different, maybe not. But I also right. think that that would have helped you so much. And I know a lot of people who were in similar boats as you where they've been so impacted because it was always about punishing the behavior. I'm bad because I did this. And so their yeah. belief now becomes that they're bad when really you were acting out of curiosity, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I really just needed, so like, this is an analogy that I've given to some of my friends. If you think about sexuality, like even that term sometimes kind of carries like a weird feeling about it. <laughs> but I would say like, if we just treated it like it was something normal. So like for me, I'm a salesman by trade. And so I want to become a great salesman. Like I want to become an expert in sales. And, you know, if we treated sexuality as the same thing, like I want to become an expert in sexuality, like I want to have a great sexual life. But I feel like kind of what happened in my childhood when I look back on that experience, like if we treated, if we use an analogy like sexuality is like playing the piano, I feel like I started touching the keys and I was like getting excited about playing and it, and it probably didn't sound very good, like I wasn't playing right. But I feel like the response was almost like shut the piano and I got in trouble for like kind of that curiosity. Yeah, it's a God-given desire. And, and I think for me, like I didn't really, I knew what I had done was bad, but what I needed help with was more so like how do I process this experience and how can I work towards becoming an expert? Like that's what I needed help with was how do I process this and how can I work towards becoming an expert? Because like you said, when the focus was entirely on punishing the behavior, there really was like almost no, I would almost argue there was no real like repentance in that experience. Yes, I didn't take the sacrament and yes, like the behavior did stop. But if you put it in that analogy of like playing the piano, I just didn't touch the piano anymore. That's what we ended up focusing on is like, I'm going to stop focusing on the piano. But like that curiosity always stayed with me. Like, I want to play the piano. I want to play the piano. I want to play the piano. But I almost felt like this barrier or this limitation of like, no, you can't play the piano. It's bad. Like, you just don't go there, you know? And I think that's what I needed was not so much I needed somebody who could kind of take that curiosity that I had and help me foster it into something that like, so that I could eventually become an expert, you know, because now I've been like five years in recovery and you could argue like, <laughs> I'm, yeah, you could argue like I'm the opposite of an expert in sexuality and I'm, but I'm like learning a lot. Like I'm, I'm failing a lot. Um, just like we would, learning anything else you know like no piano player is expected to play a perfect piece the first time they touch the piano 
But I think sometimes with sexuality, that's the expectation that we put on each other is we're like, oh, you touched the piano, like, or you didn't play a perfect note on your first try. And I don't know, like, I'm just kind of speaking from my own experience. I don't know if this is true. Like, I'm not a researcher in this. I'm not a professional. So I don't know if this is true, like across the board. But I just know from my personal experience, when I look back on my past experiences and kind of reflect on everything that happened to me, that's like one of the biggest things that I now see is like, wow, yes, I made a mistake, but like really I need, I just needed somebody to kind of take my hand and guide me through this experience and like help me to know how to live a healthy sexual life. I would say that there wasn't really anybody that was there for me. But again, like obviously I probably could have been more proactive on my end as well. I don't want to be a victim <laughs> to that experience, but it is just kind of interesting for me to kind of reflect on, yeah, my experience and what I went through. Totally. I, I really appreciate this idea that you're sharing with us and I completely agree with it. Like I wholeheartedly believe that pornography is not a good aspect of healthy sexuality, that it, yeah. It can create unhealthy sexuality, but I think what's even more damaging than watching pornography is when pornography is coupled with shame and coupled with, you're bad, this is not good, you're imperfect, you're failing. I just think you address a really important point that this is the conversation that we're having with this podcast is addressing the need to address the human being and their processing of life and learning of, like you said, playing the piano learning about sexuality, instead of simply focusing on the pornography use behavior and, mm. and really addressing who is this Maxwell boy? He's young. <laughs> he doesn't know about sexuality. He's curious. Yeah. How can we help him learn the tools necessary to live healthy sexuality, process his emotions carefully and well, and have real connection with people instead of just pounding into him stop, stop, stop. You're, stop. you're supposed to stop, you know? I love what you're saying. And, and I think that's what needs to happen is addressing the person and their continual growth as opposed to just immediately stopping a behavior and addressing the fact that we need to instill into people's hearts and minds and souls that they're loved, they have eternal potential, and that they will keep on failing. And that is totally okay, totally fine. They're still worthy of love worthy of all that's good in the world. So uh, yeah. thank you for sharing that. Yeah, totally. Maxwell, I would love to know how your relationship with God has transformed through this experience. <laughs> and just kind of to wrap us up here, I think that's where we kind of started, but I, I, wanna, I want you to be able to help us understand, like what have you learned about God as you've grown through this experience? Yeah, that's a great question. Thank you for asking. I know like at the beginning I prefaced everything kind of with that story of Peter like how we first have to drown in order to realize that we need saving like I said I had that experience when I was a, a young kid it wasn't really an issue for me all of my teenage years and into high school it was basically no longer a problem after that experience when I was a little kid but then when I got home from my mission that's when it really started to become a more serious issue to the point where I really felt like it was out of my control. It was beyond my power. From the very first moment that I started struggling with pornography, I was in Bishop's offices and I was confessing my sins. 
but even though I was like doing the things that I had been taught to do from a religious standpoint of like confess your sins to the bishop um, and kind of work through the repentance process, the whole repentance experience for me was so overwhelmingly confusing because I would repent. <laughs> I would repent of, of viewing pornography and masturbating and I would kind of talk counsel with my bishop. We had set plans for the week. Occasionally we would like check in with each other, but I would, I would relapse. Like, like I said, probably on average at least once a week. And so it was like every single week. Initially it wasn't that discouraging because I'm like, okay, I understand this is probably going to take some time for me to work through. But when you, when you've relapsed like week after week after week, after week for one, two, three, four years, it starts to get to the point where you literally feel like you're drowning. Like you, you literally feel like this is a power beyond myself. It's, it's far greater than me. And I think for me, like that was an amazing experience for me to have because I think being at a point that where I was so low like being in a point where I felt so helpless and so powerless <laughs> I just really realized like there's no power besides the power of God that can save me from this mess like I didn't mention this but like throughout those five years of working with bishops I had read books about recovering from pornography I had attended 12-step meetings I had paid for accountability software that would like track how I was using the internet. I got rid of my smartphone. I worked with psychologists and I was like, I would say that I was investing like a pretty decent amount of money for like a college kid to try to work through recovery. It wasn't like working with my bishop was the only thing that I was doing. Like I felt as if I was doing everything that I knew how to do. Like I felt as if I was doing everything that was within my power. I started to realize like, you know what? God is the only one that can save me. Like he is the only one that has the power. Like I've tried everything that I know how to do. I'm doing everything that I can. And I just really started to shift more of my trust in God and started to say like, you know, he is the only one who has the power to save me from this. I would say that that has been really been like a turning point in my relationship to God. I guess what changed for me is before this all happened, I guess I kind of was living more of a pharisaical life in the sense that like I believed that it was my obedience to God's commandments that would ultimately lead me to exaltation. I believe that it was my obedience that kind of earned exaltation. But now the way that I view it is I actually view exaltation as a gift. I believe that that's doctrinal. Like there's a really cool talk that Elder Holland gave called Be Therefore Perfect Eventually. Okay, so yeah, listen to this. This is so powerful. Our only hope for true perfection is to receive it as a gift from heaven. We cannot earn it. And I think for me, that's been like a huge, like monumental turning point in my relationship with God, because 
if you think about like the magnitude of what Elder Holland is saying, he's basically telling us that like exaltation is a gift, like perfection is a gift that God is giving to us. Like it's not something that we're, that we earn. It's actually like a gift that he gives to us. I don't want to get off on too much of a tangent, but like I would say that those are some of like the fundamental concepts for me that have like really transformed my relationship with God because I've started to view him as like a very graceful, like a God who is full of mercy. He's a God full of grace. He's a God full of love. And everything that God and Jesus Christ and the Holy Ghost do is to bring to pass my immortality and eternal life. And that's something that like I choose to believe every single day. Like that's a statement that I remind myself of every single day is that God, the Father, Jesus Christ and the Holy Ghost are united in power and purpose to bring to pass my immortality and eternal life. And for me, like, that's such a powerful belief because when I relapse and relapse and relapse and try and try and try and fail and fail and fail like over and over and over and over again for years, it would be so easy for me to just point to God and say like, where are you? Like, where are you? Like, where, why are we going through this? This doesn't make any sense. Like it's been years. It's been years. Like, I don't know what else I can do to recover from this. And so for me, like that belief just reminds me that God is merciful. God is loving. He's full of grace and he is mindful of me and he is leading me to exaltation. Like these minor setbacks and these relapses that seem like such a big deal to me right now, I know someday he will lead me out of this desert and into the promised land. And like, I'm going to look back on that experience on, on like this experience that I'm having right now in this recovery. And I'm just going to look back on that. And I'm going to say like, wow, like it's only because of the power of God that I made it through that desert. He was my light in the darkness. He was my manna from heaven. He is the reason why I have been able to work through this. When I remind myself of that belief, I don't know, for me, there's been nothing more powerful for me in my recovery than reminding myself of that belief every single day. It's a promise. I know that it will be fulfilled, even though it seems impossible. Like I have like a complete reassurance that God's going to lead me to that outcome. Like he's going to lead me to the promised land and he is going to exalt me. That's just something that I choose to believe and choose to remind myself of every single day. So I know this is kind of long-winded, but I, I guess I would say that without pornography and without working through my recovery, like I feel like these are, these are ideas that I don't know if I would have learned any other way. Just like I was saying, like you can't really recognize that you need to be saved until you first feel that you're drowning. Like there's like such a beautiful, like, contrast in those <laughs> a beautiful paradox for sure yeah exactly yeah maxwell thank you so much for sharing your story and your <laughs> insights even your faith with us we are so grateful for you and we're grateful for your journey and we honor that so thank you yeah you're welcome sorry if i talk too much <laughs> we are very grateful very very grateful <laughs> No, that was good. 
Thank you for listening to Breaking the Silence by Reach 10. Help us create a new culture of connection by sharing what you heard today with at least 10 people. Please help us reach more young adults by going to iTunes to rate and review our podcast. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss any episodes. Reach 10 is a nonprofit. You can help support this podcast by donating on our website and following us on social media. We share these views to open the dialogue on these tough issues. We are not professionals, and the ideas shared on this podcast should not be taken as professional advice. The opinions and views that our hosts and guests share do not necessarily reflect the views of Reach 10, and we don't guarantee the accuracy of any statements you hear. Reach 10 is not responsible for your use of information heard on this podcast. We keep learning and invite you to join us as we build a more open, compassionate, and courageous culture.